Hello and welcome to episode 20 of Pay-Per-View where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. And I'm going to start this week with a story here about the European Union. This is in The Express. EU has lit a bomb underneath car manufacturing as Europe told not to use UK parts. The Dutch government has advised all Dutch businesses that if a large part of your product consists of parts from the UK, domestic exporters may lose free trade access under existing deals. The advice says Brexit will have consequences for exports outside the EU. After Brexit, parts made in the UK no longer count towards this minimum production in the European Union. This in reference to rules of origin and local content under international trade rules. A leading car industry executive said not using UK parts for EU exports would be a catastrophe for the British industry. They said the hard Brexiteers have built a bomb under the UK automotive industry and the EU have lit it. In order to qualify for EU free trade deals, a certain portion of a product's parts need to come from the EU. This is usually more than half, at around 55%. The Dutch government says UK parts no longer count towards EU origin in its official Brexit impact scan. This warning is also supported by the EU's own technical notice on the issue. It says, as of withdrawal date, the UK becomes a third country. UK imports are considered non-originating. According to Sky News, major UK automotive suppliers are now ceasing UK supply of major components to cars for exports to countries covered by the EU free trade areas. These include countries such as South Korea, South Africa and Canada, but a study from consulting firm Deloitte said sales of German car makers in the single market will decrease by 20% in the case of Brexit. According to the study, sales losses will drop to the level of the financial crisis in 2008 in the case of a hard Brexit. The study also reports that 60,000 jobs in Germany's car industry are dependent on these exports and 18,000 of these jobs are endangered by a hard Brexit. The main reason for this loss will be the price collapse of the British pound which leads to an increase in German car prices in the UK. Well, I've said before on pay-per-view that the global elite own the global financial system and it's no problem for them to manipulate financial and economic problems to get people to think again about Brexit. In terms of car firms using certain parts from certain countries, if you want a global dictatorship as the global elite do, then you can't have independence where countries can govern themselves and have the resources they need to be self-sufficient. You need to manufacture interdependence where countries are relying on other countries to be successful and for what they need. And if they have to go through a governing body for the trade to happen and you control that body, that means that they're dependent on you. When Britain was signed into the European Union in 1973 by Ted Heath, it was known, even as has come out in the mainstream media, what that would entail. And part of this was a running down of Britain's fishing industry. Because if you want to create interdependence, you need everyone to be reliant on everyone else and you control society through corporations that you own. So countries have to go through your corporations and your governing body, in the case of the European Union. And they want a world government, as I've said before, using the unions as the means to dictate to the countries in those areas of the world. So Europe, through the European Union, for example, and countries are designed to be broken up into mega regions to make it easier to dictate to. This is the perfect method of control, and that's what the European Union is really all about. We hear about 5G. This is in the Daily Mail. Prepare for super fast mobile streaming. EE announces a London trial of its 5G network starting in October. The first 5G network is coming to the UK with mobile provider EE announcing plans to test the next generation technology with customers this year. 
BTM company will roll out a small trial in East London in October which will let a handful of people experience the super fast internet connection. With download speeds predicted between 1 to 10 Gbps, 5G network technology could be as much as 50 times faster than current 4G connections. High definition films could download in under 30 seconds compared to around 6 minutes on a 4G mobile data connection. See this is the selling point. Give up your health and your perceptions for the sake of an extra fast download. And then when you come back from the hospital, you can watch the film you've downloaded. EE's forthcoming trial will take place in Tech City, an area in London between Old Street and Shoreditch with a high concentration of web businesses. 10 sites will have access to the 5G network, five small businesses and five homes. These will include sites on City Road, Old Street, Hoxton Square, St Paul's and Chisel Street. Mark Alera, CEO of BT's Consumer Business said, This live trial is a big step forward in making the benefits of 5G a reality for our customers and in making sure that the UK is at the front of the path for 5G technology. We're focusing our resource and experience across EE and BT to ensure that we continue to lead the UK market with a mobile network that keeps giving our customers the best speeds and the best coverage. 5G is a fundamental part of our work to build a converged smart network that keeps our customers connected to the things that matter most. The article goes on. To be able to test the upgrading network, those who are selected to take part in the trial will be given a prototype 5G compatible device. The trialists have yet to be selected, with EE promising to pick the lucky few over the coming weeks using social media. Yeah, the lucky few who will have their health destroyed. The BTM firm expects the adoption of 5G to kickstart widespread adoption of other emerging technologies which require a high-speed connection, including virtual reality and augmented reality integration with mobile apps. That's the transhumanism agenda I've talked about before, not least in episode 11. Minister for Digital, Margot James, said we want the UK to be a global leader in 5G as part of our ambition to create a world-leading digital economy that works for everyone. Together with the government's own test base and trials programme, industry initiatives like this will help deliver the benefits of this new revolutionary technology to businesses and consumers across the UK. The company founded in 2010 when network providers Orange and T-Mobile merged wants to be the first to launch a 5G network in the UK. It hopes to build on and improve its pre-existing 4G infrastructure. Being first past the post will not be easy, with a rival mobile firm O2 also planning a trial of 5G technology sometime this year. Isn't it interesting how corporations always follow the elite's agenda? Not just one or two of them, but many of them. The O2 Arena in North Greenwich will be kitted out with 5G later this year. O2 said visitors will be able to use the technology from the second half of 2018. O2 has not revealed a timeline for widespread rollout, but it said the trial would allow 5G to be ready and primed to launch leading next generation network for customers when spectrum and equipment availability allow. I've talked before on pay-per-view about 5G in episode 12. With the Wi-Fi you've had up to this point, there's been a bit of a debate about Will it be harmful for you? Won't it be harmful? It is harmful, but affects people differently. But 5G is not just the next version of Wi-Fi. It's a massive jump forward in terms of frequency and radiation. And it's going to be an absolute catastrophe for our health and our lifespan if we allow it. So put it simply as I can, this has to be resisted if we're going to live in a society worth living in. 5G is part of a much bigger agenda. I've mentioned many times on pay-per-view, not least in episode four, the Agenda 21 world, Agenda 21 out of the United Nations. One of the goals of the Agenda 21 world is to get people into smart cities and to clear people away from rural land. 
They won't ever want to be crammed into smart cities in human settlement zones in Agenda 21 language. There's even been a map produced of America under Agenda 21, which I'll link to when I upload the episode. And only the bits in green are for normal human use in the words of the map. And when you consider the size of North America, it gives you an idea of the scale of what is planned. Now, how are you going to do that unless there is a massive cog of the human population? This is where the elite's depopulation agenda comes in. 5G is going to massively contribute to this, and it's going to cause various health problems for people. Anyone who ignores the health consequences of 5G is condemning themselves and their children to an absolute abomination to their health and possibly death. 5G is one of the worst aspects of the elite's agenda I've ever come across in my 10 years of research. Another aspect to this is the technological agenda called transhumanism, which involves a wireless network of information to which the human mind is designed to be attached called the cloud or the smart grid, which I talk about in episode 11. This will be the end of the human mind. People like Ray Kurzweil, a Google executive, the monster Google, which I've talked about before, and co-founder of the Singularity University, a tech university in Silicon Valley, California, are talking and writing about how the cloud, as he calls it, will in the end do all human thinking until there's no human left and all human thought is delivered by artificial intelligence. So the human mind becomes artificial intelligence. This network needs 5G at the very least to operate. This is the real reason for 5G. If people say, well, if they've got this technological agenda and they need Wi-Fi, we've already got Wi-Fi, what's holding them back? Well, they need 5G at the very least. That's why they haven't done it yet, otherwise they already would have done the only stumbling block in their way is whether or not people accept 5G, and this is why it's absolutely crucial that people reject 5G. If people reject en masse, and it has to be en masse, 5G, then that's a massive spanner in the works of their agenda. Transhumanism is the end of the human mind or the end of human thought, and 5G is the information delivery system of the transhumanist hive mind known as the cloud or the smart grid. If people don't reject 5G, then we might as well put the handcuffs on now and the ball and chain and go quietly. This is going to be a real sign of where we stand in terms of whether or not we reject the elite's agenda or whether we make sheep look like a super intelligent, independent species. Do we want to die or suffer enormous health consequences? Do people want to take the risk with 5G? Do people who have children want the consequences for them? We'll find out as 5G is rolled out or not, depending on public reaction. story here about the state stealing of children. This is in the Daily Mail. Nurse's one-year-old son is taken from her care after she let him sit in above the builder toy car that was inappropriate for his age. A qualified nurse has had a one-year-old boy taken from her care after a social worker raised concern about the way she let him sit in above the builder toy car which was inappropriate for his age. The social worker told a family court judge how she had concerns about the woman's basic parenting skills after observing her with the child in the play area. Judge Eleanor Owens heard how the social worker also felt that the woman had not fed the boy appropriately and had not changed his nappy appropriately. The judge said, All professionals involved were concerned about the woman's lack of insight and said the social worker had highlighted some of those concerns. She ruled that the little boy should live with relatives but said he would be able to stay in touch with his mother. Detail of the case has emerged in a ruling by Judge Owens following a private family court hearing in Reading, Berkshire. Council Social Services staff had asked her to make decisions about the boy's future. She said no one involved could be identified. Judge Owen said the woman was a qualified nurse, but had an extremely low range of intellectual inability. 
She said an independent social worker had prepared a report after observing mother and son. The independent social worker highlighted some of the concerns around the woman's ability to meet the needs of the boy, said the judge in her ruling. These include not feeding the boy in an appropriate position, not changing his nappy appropriately and placing his nappy changing mat very close to a metal table leg when he was moving around on the mat. Judge Owen said the social worker watched the woman spend about an hour holding the boy who was sitting in the bob of the builder car. The social worker had told how the woman maintained limited eye contact and communication said bob the builder toy car was inappropriate for his age because there was a potential risk of the boy falling if the woman lost control of him. To qualify as a nurse, a student usually takes a degree course for which they generally need an A11 in biology or another science. Courses are made up of work placements, lectures, exams and practical tests. Well, we only know what this paper says about this case, but this is very much like cases I've come across over the years where children are taken from loving parents for spurious reasoning and handed over to social services in the state. Now, this is another example of what I've talked about before with the state taking over from parents. This is designed to be the norm in the end. The elite want to break up anything socially cohesive. And one reason for that is to break up any chance of a resistance by people because resisting the elite's agenda has to be done without violence and in the end without protest because although protest might make a change here and there ultimately it's pointless and resisting the elite's agenda has to be done in numbers and family is obviously a great example of social cohesion and a way for people to come together so that's another reason why they want to take children. I know a friend of a friend of mine who's our personal experience of the state taking their child. I first came across the fact that the state was taking children for spurious reasons on a massive scale in 2010 but it's been going on for a long time now that this story was more or less based on suspicion that something could go wrong. There was no accident. There was no harm caused to the child. It was just suspicion that an accident could happen, but if you don't have a real reason for a child to be taken away, then invent one. There's a great interview with a woman called Maggie Malone, who was on the Richie Allen show, which I mentioned before. I do recommend it. She chairs the steering committee, or at least did at one point, of the adoption inquiry. And she is or was a social worker on the case of the state wrongfully taking children from parents in the family courts. The family courts are secret and the media can't attend. They say it's to protect the children and the families, but it's to protect those who want to take children away. In Scotland, there's another level of the state taking control over children with their Named Persons Act, which designates every child in Scotland a named person to oversee every area of the child's life. And if anything is wrong on their own terms, their own judgment, then a child can be taken away. We're seeing schools taking increasing control over parents of children, with schools dictating more and more fine detail of children's lives and children's school experience. This was brilliantly portrayed in an episode of a TV series called Electric Dreams. I've watched nearly all the first series, and there's an episode called Safe and Sound, which shows this state control over children. Yes, there's some exaggeration for dramatic purposes, but it's very close to the world we're heading towards, and the world we're already in to an extent in terms of state control of children and young people. People who investigate child abuse, including police, have found the authorities in the state come down on them. One of the benefits of the state bringing up children is the total control of the child's perceptions from an early age in the child of today is the adult of tomorrow. In the last several years, they've changed the way in which social services job applications are processed to recruit certain personality types, psychopaths, in other words, Psychometric testing is part of the job applications process, meaning personality can be judged very accurately from answers given to certain questions in the job application. This has been done to recruit people who have no empathy or compassion with the victims of their actions, like taking children away. So they're not recruited on their 
qualifications or their experience or their ability to do the job as much as their personality. If people saw the full scale of child abuse and child abduction and other things that go on involving children, then it would be no problem anymore coming to terms with the idea that terrorist events like 9-11 could be perpetrated to advance a foreign policy agenda or any other terrorist attack that was orchestrated towards that end. It would be no problem for people to accept that excuses could be made to go into countries like Iraq or to conflict with countries like Russia and events and excuses could be made up towards that end. It would be no problem coming to terms with the fact that an agenda could be orchestrated through corporations for there to be health-destroying and, in the case of 5G, lethal radiation in society from Wi-Fi, from mobile phones, from other wireless devices, and 5G is going to take that on to a massive extent, as I've already said in this episode. People say, they'd never do that. No, you would never do that. They would. There's a difference. People seem to judge what those in power and authority and establishment, etc., would do based on what they would do because they believe they're the same thing. They're not the same thing. They're about as far away from each other as it is possible to be. And some of these people, the public elect to run the country, politicians, political leaders, among others. There was, last year, reaction against an EastEnders storyline. EastEnders is a soap in the UK for people around the world who don't know what that is. And there was a storyline on EastEnders last year when a character called Stacey Fowler had her children taken away by social services. And one clueless viewer wrote in reaction to the storyline, who researched this storyline? Social services don't just take kids away. Yes, they bloody do. And on a far bigger scale than most people realise. This is an article about the reaction to the episode in the Daily Mail. Who researched this? Furious EastEnders fans slam an accurate storyline as social services take away weeping Stacey Fowler's kids after an anonymous tip-off. A social worker and chief police officer stormed the Fowler home and took away Stacey's kids in Friday's episode after Carmel Kazemi claimed Stacey was abusing her baby son Arthur. Fans claimed the far-fetched scene, not far-fetched at all, quite the opposite, was a scandalous misrepresentation of social services. Some of the people that work in social services, yes. But other people, it's absolutely spot on. Insisting a child would never be taken away on the basis of one phone call. They were also outraged at how quickly they arrived, accompanied by police just hours after Carmel's phone call to them. As services took away bruised Arthur and his sister Lily, Stacey broke down in tears and wept, they're my babies. Who researched this storyline when viewer wrote, social services don't just take kids away. Yes, they do. Disgusting how you showed them. Very misleading and not true. Accurate. Scandalous misrepresentation. Social services are so underfunded, can never respond and should never respond like that. Another added. One social worker penned. For fuck's sake, standards just makes mine and plenty of others' jobs harder. Stop painting a bad picture of social services. Well, like I said... Some of the people that work in social services will have no idea this is going on and will believe that when children are taken away it's done because it's the best for the child. But other people in social services are involved in taking children away and they'll know that it's for a spurious reason. They'll know the child should not be taken away. Another viewer wrote, EastEnders making inaccurate portrayals of social services. No, accurate. 
visits on the same day as report and after 5 p.m. too. Social services storyline is so far-fetched, they don't turn up that quick and with police wouldn't just remove them. Well, go on YouTube and look at videos of police forcibly taking kids away from parents. Videos are on YouTube to look at. Other viewers added that there are several stages before social services take a child and then it wouldn't happen after one anonymous phone call. Man Online has contacted a BBC spokesperson for comment. The distressing scene was caused by meddling grandmother Carmel who was shocked after Lily Fowler claimed her mum Stacey had hurt baby Arthur. Seeing Arthur's arms covered in bruises, she rang the authorities. She then realised the bruises weren't actually caused by Stacey, but by that time it was too late to stop social services coming. The officer said, we've received a call about the welfare of your son Arthur Fowler and we need to ask you a few questions. I don't want you to be alive, Stacey, but we just need to follow up on a report we had. We just want to make sure Arthur is somewhere calm and safe to stay tonight and Lily would need to be with him too. The article goes on. As Stacey burst into tears and fell into Martin's arms, guilty Carmel stayed quiet and offered to take the kids for the night. Please don't worry, Stacey, I'll look after him. I'm sorry, she said. What this reaction to this episode proves is how clueless people are of the way children are taken away from parents for no reason whatsoever on a far bigger scale than people would even begin to imagine. If people saw what happens to children beyond the occasional news story, people think the number of children taken away or abused is commensurate with the number of stories that make it in the media. That's a tiny, tiny fraction. Most of it, people never hear about. The vast majority of it, people have no idea. And then, those same people then go and say that it's not happening. Two reasons for that. One, people are not told about the scale of it by the media, because the media doesn't know either, except when they actually bother to research it, which is only now and then. And B, most people could not comprehend the full magnitude and scale of child abuse and child abduction by the upper levels of society, the establishment, etc. And that's just in this country, never mind globally, every year, every month. I don't know if there's a word to accurately describe it. Incalculable is probably the best word. Incalculable. This is what's going on while people are watching EastEnders, ironically, football, or quiz shows, or going to the pub. At the very same time, these children, children in this country, never mind around the world, are being abused and abducted on an incalculable scale. And if anybody wants confirmation of how ridiculous and spurious some of the reasons or excuses, to be more accurate, are for taking children away. This is in the Daily Mail. This is from June 2009. Social workers took away my twins after I joked that birth spoiled my body. Now, this is a story I came across a while ago now, but I'd never seen an article about it until I was researching for this episode. But this is a woman who had twins. She had a caesarean section. She paid £38,000 on IVF treatment to have the children. And because she joked with a social services worker that the birth had ruined her figure, it took the child away. Simple as that. Social services don't just take children away. The article says, A mother had her twin babies taken from her by social workers after she joked that the caesarean birth had ruined her figure. She and her husband endured five rounds of IVF costing £38,000 to start a family only to have social services take their children within weeks. The parents insist social workers acted needlessly but have been warned their six-month-old boy and girl could put up for adoption following a secret family court hearing last week. 
The babies who were born six weeks prematurely were taken into care after hospital staff warned that first-time parents were struggling to care for them. Nurses reported that the mother appeared to feel bitter towards her children after her joke about the caesarean's effect on her body. And when the desperate woman lost her temper at social workers who had taken her babies, officials said she had anger problems that could pose a threat to her twins. Now, the reason why she's angry is because her child's being taken away for a spurious reason. That's why he's angry. The babies were born in December. This is December 2008. At the height of nationwide fury that social workers have failed to step in and halt the abuse and tragic death of baby Peter in Harringay, North London. They didn't step in then, did they? Boy, when he died in England, and he suffered more than 50 injuries, and children's services were aware of it, but did nothing about it. The article goes on. The alarm over Peter's death has raised the prospect that some innocent families have been caught up in the backlash. The couple from Hornchurch, Essex, can be identified only as Mr and Mrs N to protect the identity of their children. They are allowed only supervised contact for 10 hours a week with their son and daughter and have been warned that the babies could be handed to strangers for adoption if the judge rules they cannot care for them. Mrs N, a 36-year-old who has been told she cannot try for more children for medical reasons, said social services should step in where there's violence or abuse but we would never hurt our children. Her 42-year-old husband added, No one is born with parenting skills. You have to learn them. The couple had been married for five years. A childhood infection left Mrs. N suffering from a rare hormone disorder and unable to conceive naturally, and she suffers from short-term memory loss because of a car accident when she was a teenager, but doctors said there was no reason why she should not undergo IVF treatment. The babies were delivered on December 30th after Mrs. N was admitted to Whips Cross Hospital in East London with high blood pressure. They both weighed a little more than three pounds and were kept in incubators at the NHS hospital's neonatal unit where their parents were eventually able to help feed and care for them. But staff became concerned that they were not giving the twins enough milk or changing them often enough. On January 29th, the senior nurse referred the family to social services. Mrs N said the hospital could see we were struggling but they made no attempt to help us. They just decided we didn't have the parenting skills to look after the babies. They wrote down everything we did and said so they could use it against us. They twist everything. I remember talking to my son while he was in his cot and saying jokingly, do you want to see what you've done to your mummy's body? It didn't mean I felt bitter towards him. I didn't want him. I've never wanted anything as much as I wanted children. That's why she spent £38,000 to have the child. That's the kind of sum of money you spend, isn't it, when you don't want something? The quote goes on. I was just joking about the state of my stomach. The article goes on. Social workers visited the couple and asked to take the children into foster care. When the parents refused, Havering Borough Council took the case to court and in February was granted an interim care order to give the twins to a foster carer. Mr and Mrs N were allowed to visit but found it difficult to see their babies in a stranger's care and Mrs N and shouted at the foster mother and social workers during angry confrontations over the twins' welfare. The petite five foot two inch woman was accused of throwing a mobile phone at a social worker and officials once called the police during an angry case conference. Mrs N said, who wouldn't be emotional watching another woman with my children? How am I supposed to stay calm? I'm terrified that they are going to take my babies away. Of course I get frustrated and I sometimes lose my temper but never with the children. We don't drink, smoke or take drugs. Neither of us has a criminal record. All we wanted was to have a family. A council spokesman said only in exceptional circumstances will we seek to separate a child of any age from their parents. This decision was undertaken with a great deal of thought and following thorough assessment. Well, the spokesman might have thought that, but the opposite is the case in many cases. This is what happens. While people say social services don't just take children away, we'll go and talk to this mum and see what she has to say about that. There's an article here in The Spectator from... September 2017. The sinister power of Britain's family courts. 
even if decisions are obviously cruel and unjust, the public is often not allowed to know. It's right that some children are taken into care. One case in point, according to this article, is that of Ayesha Jane Smith, the toddler who was stabbed to death by a violent young mother in 2014. She was known to social services for all of her short life from the point when her pregnant mother was found living in the garage, but she was never removed. This week, a serious case review found that social workers missed the danger signs. Well, they, well, they never miss the danger signs when they want to take a child away, do they? They're straight on them then. The article goes on. Danger signs, a nebulous phrase with numerous interpretations. In tragic cases like this one, the danger signs are ignored possibly because it is tempting for social workers to avoid dealing with the most aggressive and confrontational families. Because of the strict secrecy surrounding family courts, it is often only when these cases arrive in a criminal court that we get a glimpse of how badly some children are let down. But there is another risk, the opposite side to why you Jane's story. Should social workers choose to see danger signs in their own places? It's all too easy for children to be taken away from perfectly functional homes. Yeah, isn't it just? The article goes on. Last year, I wrote a spectator piece about women with postnatal depression who were made to feel at risk of having their children removed. This common condition seemed to have become a new danger sign. Afterwards, I received a number of emails from readers whose families had, for various reasons, been broken apart in the courts. They knew that discussing their stories was risky, but they chose to anyway. One letter came from a university-educated professional couple. The wife had been ill to the point where she could barely get out of bed, but officials would not believe that the husband would be able to look after their child while she recovered. Social services were in the process of trying to remove and rehouse the child via a court order. Another message came from a woman whose ex-husband was a banker. He had been abusive towards her, she said, yet her decision to leave her marriage had been used in court against her as a way of arguing that she was not fit to care for her child. She did not have enough money for an appeal and her ex could afford to spend more on better lawyers. When we met, she sobbed as she told me that her bitter advice to other women in similar situations was to never leave your husband no matter how abusive because it puts you at risk of losing your children. One of the most upsetting letters came from a woman with autism. After the birth of her baby, social services would pass mother and child around various hospitals to monitor parenting skills. Eventually, they concluded that her child needed to be taken away. What gives social services the right to scrutinise, judge or intimidate parents who have disabilities and parents or illnesses, she asked. And why are they allowed to remove children in such an underhanded secretive way and the parents are powerless to stop it? The article goes on. I do not know the answers, but I know that even asking such questions will result in a flurry of correspondence from judges and legal experts who will tell me that the family courts must remain private. They blanch the word secret to protect the child and the family. I understand that, but from the letters I received, I also sense how terrifying it must be to find oneself caught up in this with the full force of the state telling you what's best for your family. We all know our family courts are shielded from media or public scrutiny, but that lack of transparency can often lead to abuse of power. Judges and family courts can withhold information not just for the good of the individual's concern, but also to conceal their own verdict. As such, family courts can be sinister places where cruel decisions are made. Judges and family courts can withhold information not just for the good of the individual's concern, but also to conceal their own verdict. As such, family courts can be sinister places where cruel decisions are made, and obviously unfair decision will not necessarily generate a public outcry because often the public cannot know. Louise Tickle, an experienced family court reporter, recently described how hard it can be to write about what goes on at a hearing, even when it becomes clear that mistakes have been made or the outcome is unjust. If journalists are allowed into court, the judge can usually decide what they can or cannot report. Because of reporting restrictions on saying what really happens in family courts, pretty much the only place our poor social work practice visibly plays out. It has been impossible to explain the many failures and all their shocking details, she said. The article goes on. A few of the parents who wrote to me said that they felt their cases weren't held to the same standards as a criminal trial, and yet having a child removed is one of the harshest sentences possible. There is indeed a different standard of proof. In family courts, a dispute must be proved by the balance of probabilities rather than beyond reasonable doubt. There was also no jury, only a judge. 
Sir James Munby, Britain's most senior family judge, has long argued for more transparency. Freedom of speech is not something to be awarded to those who are thought deserving and denied to those who are thought undeserving, he said. Absolutely, I've said that before. If one person doesn't have freedom of speech, then nobody does. They're only free to stay within the bounds of what is decided can be said. The article goes on. This view has always come up against much resistance from Sir Munby's profession, who are understandably wary of the glare of the press. The readers who contacted me have one thing in common. They have discovered how frightening it is to find your family tangled up in this system. I was not privy to the court proceedings in the above three cases, because the media is not allowed to attend. So I do not know precisely what happened. Even if I did, I probably wouldn't be allowed to write about it. They seem to me to be decent people who have discovered to their despair quite how much power the state can wield when on the hunt for danger signs. Behind closed doors, those families have been ripped to pieces. But who cares about that as long as you can take the child? This is another article. This is in The Telegraph. This was published in December 2009. Couple flee Britain amid fierce social services will kidnap their unborn son unborn son. The pair who cannot be named for legal reasons intend to travel to Spain because they fear social workers will try to adopt their son who is due in February. Their daughter was taken into care in October last year when she was nine weeks old after Suffolk County Council raised concerns that they were unfit to bring her up. The couple alleged that police and council staff forced their way into their home. What was that? That one of the viewers said about that EastEnders storyline? Police wouldn't just remove the child. The article goes on. The couple alleged that police and council staff forced their way into their home and snatched the girl despite no allegation made against them ever having been proven. The 32-year-old woman and 41-year-old man said they felt they had been driven from their own country in order to ensure they could bring up their own child. The father of a lorry driver told the Daily Telegraph, we are absolutely terrified that social services would do exactly the same thing with our baby boy as they did with our daughter. They have already requested that we attend meetings for pre-birth risk assessment, but we are not taking any chances, so we're leaving immediately. We feel like refugees being driven from our own country just so we can have the right like any other parent to bring up our own son. We've had to drop our entire lives and flee, but we cannot take the risk of losing our baby. It will destroy us. Pair intend to start a new life abroad and have arranged to move into a flat in Algorfa, a small town on the Costa Blanca in Alicante. Last month in the comments, Tim Yeo, the couple's local MP, accused council officials of kidnapping the child solely to boost our adoption figures. This council actively seeks opportunities to remove babies from their mothers. Social work staff do so in a manner which in my view is sometimes tantamount to child kidnapping, he told MPs. The mother came to the attention of social services in 2006 when she was married. As the marriage disintegrated and the custody battle ensued, allegations were made to social services about her ability to be a good mother. It was claimed that she had a factitious disorder, a condition in which sufferers are said to feign illness or exaggerate symptoms. It was also alleged that she had falsely claimed her son suffered from various illnesses. She denies both claims. She gave birth to a daughter in August last year and she and her new partner were allowed to take the baby home following advice from doctors. The couple said they were continually hounded by social services until October 27th when council staff and police banged on their door and moved in and removed the girl. They were not allowed to cuddle their daughter or see before she was taken, they said. Since then, the couple have only been allowed to see their daughter at supervised visits to a children's centre 15 miles away. Adoption proceedings were finalised in September and the baby is due to be transferred to adopted parents in January. Suffolk County Council has denied it wanted to take the baby to boost targets. The spokesman said Suffolk did not have targets in following national guidance and legislation on providing an adoption service. Again, some people in social services know, some don't. One of the excuses used to take children away is the parent refusing to accept the official line. For example, refusing to vaccinate their child because of concerns about the vaccine's contents and therefore its effect on their child, which should be their prerogative, not the state's. I've talked about mainstream medical care and also pharmaceutical treatments come to that before in pay-per-view, not least in episode 17. A point that I think should be made about vaccinations is that if a child has been vaccinated, then how can a child who has not been vaccinated be a threat to the child who has been? 
I thought the point of the vaccine was to stop people getting the disease. Well, in truth, it's about poisoning the body and making more money for the pharmaceutical giants. But even officially, the idea is that once you've been vaccinated, you're protected against the disease. So what does it matter if a child who hasn't been vaccinated comes into contact with you? It's just another excuse to target a child and take them away from a family. There's a very poignant fact, however, that goes on from refusing to follow the state's official line as a parent. And that is when you go to a secret family court, the judge is representing the state. The social worker in the organisation they work for is representing the state. The official medical advice and party line saying get vaccinated is an expression of the state. I wonder what the judgement is in many cases because of that. For those who think this is only happening in the UK, this is an article on ABC, which is a news channel in America. This is an article on ABC's website from October 2011. California, to be exact. Audit 1,000 foster care addresses match sex offender registry. More than 1,000 addresses for state-run foster homes match the addresses found in the state sex offender registry according to a California state auditor's report released Thursday. This is something I've come across in my research of this subject before. Foster homes and care homes. We've had inquiries into care homes in this country. Well, inquiries, for want of a word, really. I, that's what they're officially called. The article goes on. In addition to the Department of Social Services, the audit covered Sacramento, Alameda and Fresno County Child Welfare Services. Social services officials were advised three years ago to utilise a database to identify any offenders, but the auditor's office said social services failed to do so. Why? State auditor Elaine Howell said about 600 of the addresses were tied to high-risk offenders. She also said that while counties generally do perform background checks on individuals prior to placing children in foster homes, counties fail to consistently notify state licensing officials or quickly report abuse and neglect to the State Department of Justice. Since notification of the address matches in July, the Department of Social Services has revoked or suspended eight licenses. Social services and county agencies have also found six cases in which registered sex offenders were living or present at licensed facilities. The department also barred 36 individuals from being at the sites. Assemblyman Henry Perea Fresno prompted the audit after the deaths of several foster care children were reported. Now, if you want to abuse children, what would be the best place for you to work? Jimmy Savile, a record-breaking paedophile who died in 2011. Record-breaking, at least as far as the records that the public know about. He was very well connected with the upper echelons of society, including royalty. And he used to visit a children's home in Jersey. That's the perfect place to go, never mind work if you want to abuse children. People who investigate child abuse, including police, have found the authorities in the state come down on them like a ton of bricks, rather than supporting them in their investigations, which is what they should be doing, because child abuse is protected. And by that I mean those who engage in it are protected. These are a few examples. There's an article here in the Express from November 2017. Fellow police made my life torture for trying to stop Rochdale sex ring, claims detective. Maggie Oliver said her professional life was made torture after she told senior officers that police were not doing enough to protect girls from a predominantly Asian paedophile ring in the media before that police didn't want to investigate Asian grooming gangs or migrant grooming gangs because they were migrants or because they were Asian. And this is where political correctness is at play again. They didn't want to be accused of being racist. How is it racist to arrest somebody because of if you are a policeman you should be protecting the community 
from criminals, not least pedophiles, so it's not racist, it's just doing your job. The article goes on. The former detective constable resigned from Greater Manchester Police in late 2012 over failures that allowed the Rochdale perpetrators to escape justice for many years. However, before she quit, she alleges she was bullied for a year and a half while working on Operation Span, the investigation into Rochdale. Rochdale is a place in Britain for people around the world, and this is referring to the grooming gangs in Rochdale. Miss Oliver has not spoken publicly about her bullying so as not to detract from the way in which the young victims were let down by the police. However, she has now decided to speak out to support another detective, John Wedger. I'll be reading an article about him next. Who, the Sunday Express revealed last week, is suing the Metropolitan Police for a psychiatric injury he suffered as a result of bullying. She said, I've never spoken publicly about my personal treatment because I never wanted to deflect from the fact the police had failed the child victims of Rochdale, but in trying to expose criminal neglect by senior officers that for me was on a par with Hillsborough. Hillsborough was a football stadium in England for people around the world and what happened was people in the crowd were constantly being let into the ground and they had fences so as people came into the ground there was obviously too many people and vans got crushed and police for many many years tried to cover up the fact that it was their fault they tried blaming other people but it was their fault and then eventually finally it came out that it was their fault the article goes on miss oliver was tasked with gaining the trust of vulnerable but hostile victims however when they began to identify asian grooming gangs she said the police called their interest in the investigation she said gmp had a specialist interview suite for vulnerable victims which was purpose-built to be non-confrontational it's like a living room laid back because you want your witnesses to feel at ease yeah, I remember one senior officer screaming down the phone at me telling me that I had to take vulnerable victims to a suspect interview suite where some of them had been taken previously when they were accused of something they hadn't actually done. Miss Oliver claimed harassment stepped up when she was off work with stress. She said two senior colleagues turned up at my house one day and demanded that I surrender the police phone I'd had for 15 years. The reason they gave was that they didn't want the victims to call me and put me under more stress. It was complete nonsense, just another attempt to isolate me further and shut me up. This is the story I mentioned just now. This is in the Express. Baby P detective sues bully police after exposing child abuse and corruption. John Wedger said he was forced into early retirement from the Metropolitan Police after suffering a breakdown last year brought on by post-traumatic stress disorder. The former detective constable has begun a civil claim against Scotland Yard seeking damages for psychiatric injury arising from work-related stress. Mr. Wedger said he was bullied after filing an intelligence report alleging that some of his colleagues knew a prostitute was pipping out girls as young as nine but turned a blind eye. He claimed he was told by a high-ranking Metropolitan Police officer to keep quiet or be thrown to the wolves. Last night, Father of Four, Mr. Wedger said, I joined the police to serve the community and make a difference. I have wholeheartedly, loyally and relentlessly pursued and arrested and prosecuted those I was asked to target. Yet for doing so and digging up information the police did not want to deal with, my life was made hell. Mr. Wedger, 47, was involved in an investigation into a well-known prostitute in 2004 who was suspected of using children. She was linked to organised crime by intelligence from multiple sources, suggested she also had connections within the local police. The prostitute would ply youngsters, including a 14-year-old girl with drugs and alcohol, and then pimp them out to men in budget hotels near Paddington Railway Station in West London. During the course of the operation, Mr. Wedger says he found that not only were the police aware the youngsters were being used for sex, but he believed that each one officer was supplying the criminal gang with information about the investigation. After filing an intelligence report, he was brought in to see a senior officer at Scotland Yard headquarters. Mr. Wedger said he told me in a firm and formal manner that I had dug too deep. He then stated that if I mentioned a word of my findings outside of his office, then he would make sure I was thrown to the wolves. He said I had a job, mortgage and children to think about. He then asked me if I felt bullied at work. I replied that I was indeed bullied. 
he said there was a fairness at work form which I needed to complete. He said that once the form was completed, it would be sent back to him. Pointing to a waste paper bin, he told me that's where it will end up. I will never betray fellow rank nor will anyone else. Keep your mouth shut. On his last day with the unit, he was called in by the same officer. He said he offered me his hand. I reciprocated and he said, you must give your word that you will never look into child prostitution ever again. The experience left me traumatized and paranoid. Mr. Wedger joined the Child Abuse Investigation Command in the Borough of Haringey, where he became involved with the investigation in 2007 into baby Peter Connolly's death. He was later praised and rewarded for the way he handled an interview with Peter's mother, Tracy. In 2014, following the Jimmy Savile and Rotherham paedophile scandals, Rotherham was another place where there was a scandal involving grooming gangs. Mr. Wedger repeated his claims of cover-up and the bullying he suffered to a detective inspector who he says ignored them. He then approached the Met's Department of Professional Standards and was interviewed every two days. Later that year, Mr. Wedger was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Due to his protracted time off sick, he was placed on half pay, which plunged him into debt. Despite being placed under the care of an NHS mental health team and given counselling, he twice returned to work in 2015, first on the fraud investigation team and then on the road death unit. However, and then on the road death unit. However, the return to work made his PTSD even worse. Mr. Wedger of Hemel Hempstead, Hertfordshire, was finally given early ill health retirement last month after 23 years of service. He added, I'm relieved to be out. I felt at the centre of a huge conspiracy and very much alone. He is now being supported by his local MP, Sir Mike Penning, who has written to Met Chief Crusader Dick for a response to the allegations. Sir Mike said there are some really serious answers to deal with, both on what John says happened and the way he was treated afterwards. A Metropolitan Police spokesman said, We have received a civil claim from John Wedger. We are considering the claim and will respond in due course as required by the court procedures. There was also a former intelligence operative and child abuse researcher called Andrea Davison. She was involved in the inquiry into abuse in care homes in North Wales. And she made a statement as part of something called the Macker Review. And the Macker Review was an independent review of the Tribunal of Inquiry into the abuse of children in care in the former county council areas of Gwyneth and Clyde in North Wales since 1974. And this is a statement that she made, or part of it. Anyway, I'll include a link when I upload this episode to where you can read the statement in full. The terms of reference of the Waterhouse Inquiry announced on the 17th of June 1996 were to inquire into the abuse of children in care in the former county council areas of Gwyneth and Cloyd since 1974, to examine whether the agencies and authorities responsible for such care through the placement of children or through the regulation or management of the facilities could have prevented the abuse or detected its occurrence at an earlier stage, to examine the response of the relevant authorities and agencies to allegations and complaints of abuse made either by children in care, children formerly in care or any other persons excluding scrutiny of whether to prosecute named individuals. In the light of this examination, to consider whether the relevant caring and investigative agencies discharge their functions appropriately, and in the case of the caring agencies, whether they are doing so now and to report its findings and make recommendations to the Secretary of State for Wales. In 1994, the Gillings Report by the former Director of Derbyshire Social Services, Mr Gillings, and his panel detailed the rape and torture of children in care homes in North Wales. The report stated that allegations involving famous names and paedophile rings were beyond its remit. There's a surprise. Something you find again and again when you look at this is that child abuse by famous names is never investigated fully. It may be investigated up to a point, if at all, but rarely fully. And even if it is, rarely are arrests made or prosecution. Anyway, it goes on. 
The report stated that allegations involving famous names and paedophile rings were beyond its remit and something best addressed at a potential later public inquiry. It found a childcare system in which physical and sexual violence were common, from beatings and bullying to indecent assault and rape. Children who complained of abuse were not believed or were punished for making false allegations. Mr Chillings and his team were hampered by the NWP, the North Wales Police. The Chief Constable David Owen refused to meet them or help with access to the Police Major Incident Database. 130 boxes of material handed over by the Council to the NWP were not made available to the panel and the Council did not allow the inquiry to place a notice in the local press seeking information. The North Wales Police withheld evidence and obstructed Mr Chillings. This failure should have been itself the subject of an inquiry considering the number of NWP officers named by the victims as abusers. Certainly Tony Blair, who was Shadow Home Secretary at that time, believed an outside force was essential for the truth to be discovered. The fact that those organisations responsible for the care and protection of the children and who could alone act on complaints were actively involved in an apparent cover-up of the rape, sexual abuse and torture of those children was a matter which should have been properly investigated by an outside police force. This was never done. Neither did the Waterhouse Inquiry investigate the vast amount of evidence and testimony of the cover-up or the evidence of an elite paedophile ring. The result, the limits the inquiry placed upon itself, operated to prevent proper inquiry and investigation into the systematic abuse of children over decades and their exploitation by a VIP paedophile ring and use as commodities in the lucrative child porn network with its links to Peter Wright and the paedophile information exchange and the Home Office itself. The inquiry also operated to produce public speculation into the allegations against public figures and linked criminal activities. I intend to demonstrate that in my view the terms of reference of the Waterhouse inquiry were woefully inadequate and were adequate. During the 80s and 90s, I was based in North Wales working for and with the intelligence services, mainly on investigations concerning the illegal supply of arms and technology to Iraq, Iran and the former Yugoslavia. I was involved in an investigation into the transfer of chemical and biological warfare technology to Iraq. At one point I was working with the strictly military intelligence section and when the Gulf War started all the reserves were called up and I became involved in detecting sabotage and other matters. During the course of the investigation, clear links were identified between illegal arms sales, drug trafficking, support for terrorist groups and the sale and distribution of child pornography, including snuff videos. The illegal arms trade is connected to a much larger organised criminal network. The fact that sections of the Conservative government and police and government agencies were involved made it more perilous and destructive to the fabric of society. No one knew who was working for whom. I was later to give evidence of these matters in secret to Lord Justice Scott's inquiry into arms to Iraq. I became involved in the investigation of child abuse in 1989 whilst carrying out a search of a suspect premises. We found hard drugs and child pornography in video and photographic form. Some of it looked ritualistic. The investigation concerned tech transfer of biological weapons data to Iraq. Following further investigation, it was discovered that that part of the statement is redacted, was distributing pornography on a large scale including child porn videos and highly priced snuff videos where a child would be sexually abused and murdered on film. Following the discovery of the child porn mentioned above, I decided to run an unsanctioned parallel investigation into child pornography. This included an investigation into snuff videos. I discovered some of the children exploited were from local children's homes, where there appeared to exist a ready supply of children. Having been myself an abused child, cruelly committed at 14 years of age to two and a half years in the now infamous approved school, Duncroft, I was keen to expose the abuse of children in state-run establishments. It was at Duncroft that I first learned about the paedophile network. Around this time, I secretly met DC Nick Lewis from the North Wales Drug Squad in a car park 
in saint manner. I later secretly met Nick Lewis and D.I. Maldwin Roberts of a bridge in Carnarvon at the request of Nick Lewis. They asked me to help them with an investigation into child abuse and satanic ritual abuse. They told me it was a Home Office directive and asked for my confidence. I agreed to assist them and did so and did share some information with them and pass some evidence. I kept detailed notes in my diary. The Mackler Review may want to ask DC Nick Lewis and D.I. Maldwin Roberts for their testimony concerning these matters. When the opportunity arose, I asked colleagues to check the Home Office Directive and it came back with a negative. Following this, I was briefed about the paedophile information exchange, which had at one time been printed in the Home Office and the use of child porn and paedophilia by MI5 to control influential people. In other words, get powerful people involved in paedophilia and then they will act as you want forever, because if they don't, the next question is, which major media organisation do you want this footage in the posting? It goes on. The briefing included information about the abuse of children in local care homes, the extended elite paedophile network and the lucrative child porn sex trade. I was firmly told not to trust anyone in the NWP because they were deeply involved. It was at this time I realised the cover-up was actually more revealing than the actual abuse itself, more complex, convoluted and insidious. Without the systematic and organised cover-up of the abuse by the police, the abuse could not have continued. It became clear to me that the abuse and cover-up was supported also by a network of paedophiles and a wider criminal network involving rogue elements within police forces, state agencies and government itself. Decades of cover-up had led directly to children being sexually, physically and psychologically abused by protective paedophiles since the 1960s. The Macker Review has the opportunity to ask the intelligence and security services for all their files, including photographs and videos on and off politicians and VIPs involved in paedophile activities and or paedophile rings. Similar files exist on judges, civil servants and police officers. Some files include police files which have been confiscated by the security services. The intelligence and security services have all the names and details of what happened, where and when and who was and is involved. This disclosure is necessary so that those who may have been wrongly accused can be identified. Also disclosure of this hidden evidence is vital if child abuse sanctioned, protected and covered up by state agencies is to be eliminated from the United Kingdom. Paedophile networks specifically including members of the police and the judiciary as well as businessmen, solicitors, politicians, security and intelligence insiders. This network by its very nature is linked to other types of organised crime with direct links to the lucrative child porn industry and sex trade, drug trafficking, arms dealing and terrorism. The people involved in these different branches of organised crime covered each other's backs and actively supported each other to their mutual benefit. I was questioned by Chief Inspector Gareth Luke and in another part of this she says the police seized my vehicle documents and other property some of which has never been returned at least at the time of her making the statement. I campaigned along with politicians, the press and concerned others to have an all-reaching public inquiry set up. We sought a public inquiry that would investigate the sexual, physical and psychological abuse of children from care homes. The abuse was alleged to be by the directors and staff of the homes, members of the extended paedophile network which included famous names, police officers, politicians, businessmen and members of the legal profession including judges. We also wanted specifically an investigation into the ongoing cover-up and the targeting of investigators, whistleblowers and victims. In other words, place people are in the right positions in society to cover up what goes on. 
I carefully documented and filed letters and kept contemporaneous notes in reporters' notebooks of interviews with victims and officials and parliamentarians concerning the child abuse and the cover-up. I kept diaries and all the documents provided to me both openly and in confidence, for example, the contents of the Jillings report and statements from victims. Following the publication of the Waterhouse Inquiry report, Lost in Care, I archived the material collected. Until illness depleted my energy, I continued to investigate child abuse with particular interest in the child porn network and exploitation of children. I collected evidence of, as Eileen Fairweather eloquently puts it, child brothels, transportation routes, hotels and bars, fixers, providers of false documents and outlets for the lucrative trade in images of child abuse. Eileen Fairweather, an award-winning journalist, wrote in November 2012 in The Guardian, Many survivors or those supporting them have tried to point police towards the people and places used to prostitute children. They have identified child brothels, transportation routes, hotels and bars, fixers, providers of false documents and outlets for the lucrative trade and images of child abuse. Almost none of this evidence has ever been acted upon. The child protection whistleblower who contacted the MP Tom Watson last month did so because he was once in a team but just the kind needed now. I was first in contact with this team and wrote about it 19 years ago before it was abruptly closed down by orders from on high. It was a brilliant prototype, a joint police social services investigation into the ring around childcare guru Peter Wrighton. It produced establishment names and revealed an alleged link cover-up by Labour. Let's never forget paedophilia as a cross-party crime and was shut down as a result. Not one of the implicated men was prosecuted. Usual story. The result, Derby Police obtained a restraint order from Judge Burgess on April the 7th, 2010, which put a veneer of legitimacy over the police, holding all my property and all my documents, including excluded documents, and prevented anyone asking for their return. To prevent me challenging the restraint order, the court made it a contempt of court for me to pay for legal advice or assistance. I applied for legal aid, but this was refused. This tactic has resulted in not one document or item of property being returned in over three years. The majority of my documentary evidence was taken by 19 North Wales and Derby police officers headed by DC Winnard and DS Hunt on January 13, 2010, who emptied my three flats of documents and valuables. The warrant was signed by Derby Judge Burgess. A full list of the thousands of documents taken has never been provided. Neither has a list been provided of the thousands of pounds worth of gold jewellery and heirlooms seized at the same time. Save for my tenants' firearms, filing cabinet and Rolex watch. Over three years later, nothing seized has been returned either to me or my tenant, who has not even been questioned by the police. My tenant solicitors have so far failed to get a response asking for the return of his property and valuables from North Wales Police. Witness statement available. I could go on. Again, this gives you an idea of the way that people trying to investigate child abuse are hampered from doing so and the lack of prosecution of those responsible especially if they are in a position of power. This is in the Huffington Post from July 2015. Where do the children go when they are taken away? Great question. The philosophy of child protective services is to protect and improve the safety of children. According to the Adoption and Foster Care Analysis and Reporting System, there are an estimated 415,129 children in foster care in the United States as of July 2015. Children come into the system when they are abandoned, neglected, rejected, abused and orphaned. Today, when a child is taken by protective services, they are placed in any random person's home as long as the person obtains a license to become a foster parent is older than 18 and passes a criminal background check. According to LA Times writer Garrett Theoff, who obtained data from the state's electronic child welfare services case management system, which contains abuse complaints entered by county case workers, those living in private agencies' homes are one-third, or 33% more likely to endure physical, emotional or sexual abuse. 
The system is overcrowded, siblings are separated and there is a desperate need of places to put these children, which is why over 5,000 waivers have been granted to criminals so that they can become foster parents. Kiana Barker is an example of a criminal who was able to obtain a license to become a foster parent and ended up killing a two-year-old by hitting her on the head with a hammer. That might also explain how Richard Casada, a registered sex offender, was able to become a foster parent so he could continuously abuse a child placed in his care. See, that irony is here that that child, and I don't know about that individual case, but a child, a child, could be taken away for no reason whatsoever, on the most spurious of reasons, on some manufactured claim that the mother or father could be a threat to the child or the mother and father, and then they're given over to someone who abuses them or kills them, and who are registered criminals and registered sex offenders. Why would that happen if the idea was to protect the child? The article goes on. Some people become foster parents because there is money involved. They are given at least $700 per child, and if a child has disabilities or medical needs, they are given an average of $1,500 per month per child. This might explain how Deborah and Thomas Schmitz ended up with 18 disabled children who they kept locked in cages and forced to dig their own graves, reminding them no one cares about them. Including, it seems, the social services workers who decided to take them away in the first place. Social services don't just take children away. The article goes on. I spoke with community care licensing to understand how the system could be putting our children in the hands of criminals and their response to me was often, it's not the person who gets licensed who is a criminal, but regularly they'll find that it's the relatives or people who come and go or live in the back house who are abusing the children. That's their response. County auditors found some of Los Angeles' biggest foster care agencies, Homes of Hope, Teens, Happy Homes in Los Angeles, and Child Net Youth and Family Services spending taxpayer dollars on cigarettes, beer, fancy clothing, perfume and compensation packages for some of their employees worth $522,000 in 2010. Well, they care about children, they don't they? Meanwhile, these foster homes lacked hot water, had no food in their refrigerator and cabinets, one had a bathroom with a crumbling tub and a sink with no faucet handles. What was it those social workers would have said when they took that child away? The parents are danger to the child. The article goes on. Another major concern is that often the caseworkers are overworked and simply have too many children on their caseload. In some cases, the paperwork they are required to do is so extensive that it trumps the actual visits and often leads them to use template responses because the paperwork is what keeps the agency funded and jobs intact. Children were found starved and emaciated, covered in lice with rotting teeth. Another outrageous report filled out by a child welfare specialist, Vera Dubose, explained that three children were doing fine and have adjusted well to placement when in reality they had been dead for three months. Sex traffickers target youth and foster care because of their increased vulnerability. According to John Ryan, the CEO of the National Centre for Missing and Exploited Children, 60% of runaways who are victims of sex trafficking have been in the custody of social services or in foster care, and 56% of LGBTQ youth in the system end up homeless because they felt safer on the streets than in their placements or group homes. The literature does not support the belief that private foster care is superior to the government-run system it replaced. There is an increased risk of re-abuse in privatised foster care systems. The research regarding safety demonstrates a clear decrease following the shift to privatisation in Florida and in Florida, the re-abuse rate among private agencies are higher than they were before statewide expansion of the privatisation. I just provided a few examples here of the horror stories of our current child welfare system. There are countless and unfortunately so many foster kids either accept the abuse as normal or they don't speak up because they are scared of the repercussions. I know there are warm and loving foster parents out there. This is the author of this article speaking. 
I know there are warm and loving foster parents out there who open their hearts and homes to families to these children, but the fact that there are so many cases of murder, abuse and neglect is inexcusable and should be of great concern to anyone who cares about children. I don't know what the answer is, but if it were, God forbid my child who needed to be placed in the system, even for a night, I would wish there was a safe place for her to go. And I'm not necessarily suggesting we revert back to the way things were with the government-run homes that were replaced by the current private system because although there were less cases of abuse, they also had systemic problems. It was like jail for kids. The staff were cold, cruel, abusive, horrible. Look up stories from McLaren Hall if you want to read more about this. Maybe I am a dreamer, but I just cannot believe there is not a better system for these children. Where is the social justice? What about basic human rights? In November of 1912, the Jewish community opened an orphanage in Los Angeles that felt like home. Instead of crowding many children into an institutionalized setting, there were several small cottages where the children lived. Siblings were kept together and children did their own cooking and cleaning under the supervision of a house mother. Fresh milk was available from the orphanages and cows and eggs from its flock of chickens. Children attended local schools. Why don't we have places like this now? There are beautiful, wonderful homeless shelters for adults and gorgeous facilities for people with special needs and breathtaking rehab centres for people struggling with substance abuse. But what about the children? Is it too much to ask for a safe, clean place with healthy food, warm water and caring people working there? The money is there. Kind hearts exist. Currently in California alone, taxpayers pay over $400 million a year. Billions are spent nationally to this foster care industry that's clearly not doing the loving and professional job. I talked last week and the week before about a guy called Dr. Richard Day. And he was quoted by a guy called Dr. Lawrence Dunnigan. This is one of the things he said about family. Families will be limited in size. We already alluded to not being allowed more than two children. Divorce will be made easier and more prevalent. Most people who marry will marry more than once. More people will not marry. Unmarried people would stay in hotels and even live together. That would be very common. Nobody would even ask questions about it. It would be widely accepted as no different from married people being together. More women will work outside the home. That's interesting because one of the goals of the feminist movement is to get more women in the workplace so they can be taxed like men. But obviously it plays into breaking up the family unit as well. The quote goes on. More men will be transferred to other cities and in their jobs more men will travel. Therefore, it will be harder for families to stay together. This would tend to make the marriage relationship less stable and therefore tend to make people less willing to have babies. And the extended families would be smaller and more remote. Travel would be easier and less expensive for a while so that people who did have to travel would feel they could get back to their families, not that they were abruptly being made remote from their families. But one of the net effects of easier divorce laws combined with the promotion of travel and transferring families from one city to another was to create instability in the families. If both husband and wife are working and one partner gets transferred, the other one may not be easily transferred. Soon either gives up his or her job and stays behind while the other leaves or else gives up the job and risks not finding employment in the new location. Child stealing and abuse by the state is on a stunning level and part of it is connected into the elite's agenda to target children break up the family and become the parents of children. And like everything else in this global agenda, it's going to go on happening unless we address it. There's an article here about Monsanto, which are biggest proponents of GMO in the world. This is in the Daily Mail. Bayer to ditch Monsanto name after mega merger. German chemicals and pharmaceuticals giant Bayer on Monday said it will discard the name Monsanto when it takes over the controversial US seeds and pesticides producer this week, as environmental groups kept up their criticism of the mega merger. Bayer was an organization named by IG Farben, which was involved which is which was an organization involved with the Auschwitz concentration camps. It's no wonder that such an organization should wish to merge with Monsanto. 
the move comes after years of protests against Monsanto's activities by environmental groups that have badly damaged the company's brand. But Bayer executives insisted the Monsanto practices rejected by environmentalists including genetic modification of seeds and deployment of crop protection technologies like pesticides were vital to help feed a growing world population. The company name is and will remain Bayer. Monsanto will no longer be a company name, Chief Executive Werner Baumann said. Bayer's $63 billion, 54 billion euro, buyout of Monsanto, one of the largest in German corporate history, is set to close Thursday, birthing a global giant with 150,000 employees and revenues of some 45 billion euros. The Monsanto brand was an issue for some time for Monsanto management, noted Liam Condon, president of Bayer's crop science division adding that the U.S. firm's employees were not fixated on the Monsanto brand but proud of what they've achieved. Producing high-tech genetically modified seeds, many designed to grow crops resistant to its proprietary pesticides, Monsanto has been a target for environmentalist protests and lawsuits over harm to health and the environment for decades. It's understandable that Bayer wants to avoid having bought Monsanto's negative image with the billions it spent on the Phillips and Greenpeace campaigner Dirk Zimmerman. Urging a fundamental transformation in the new mega-company's policies, he accused Bayer of having no interest in developing future-proof sustainable solutions for agriculture. Activists fear Monsanto's addition to Bayer will further reduce competition in the hotly contested agrochemical sector, limiting farmers and consumers beyond GM and chemically treated crops. That's the idea. Get rid of business and get people off rural land and land where people can farm so the only choice people have is genetically modified food and food grown from pesticide and herbicide treated crops which fundamentally plays into the depopulation agenda and also allows you to get people off the land and into the mega smart cities of agenda 21. The article goes on. What's more, in recent years, weeds have begun to emerge that are resistant to products like Monsanto staple glyphosate marketed as Roundup alongside Roundup Ready seeds beginning in the 1990s. As agrochemical firms respond with new pesticides and resistant seeds, there are fears of an arms race with ever more potent weed killers. Some scientists already suspect glyphosate causes cancer, with the 2015 World Health Organization study determining it was probably determining it was probably carcinogenic. No probably about it, I would say, although Bayer has contested the research. In 2017, attempts to block the European Union's five-year renewal of its approval for the weed killer were unsuccessful. But activists are lobbying governments and France has vowed to outlaw the substance within three years. I love how they say we're going to outlaw this danger to health in these many years or this time frame. If they know it's a danger to health, why can't they do it straight away? When launching the Monsanto takeover bid, Bayer also promised it would not introduce genetically modified crops in Europe. But with the world population set to reach almost 10 billion people by 2050, Bowman argues Bayer's products and methods are needed to meet food demand. If Bayer wants to be rid of Monsanto's bad reputation, it should demonstrate that it's different. Friends of the Earth Germany, genetic modification expert Heike Moldenhauer said. For example, Bayer could stop selling products containing glyphosate and end its lobbying to deregulate new genetic modification technologies. This is an example of what I've talked about before. You can think that corporations and organisations are doing things that are bad for health because they don't know they're bad for health or because they want to keep it quiet for profit. But then there's another level above it, which is that the corporations know what they're doing is bad for health. Certainly the mega corporations, at least. And that's why they're doing it, because there's an agenda for the world and society. And as I keep saying, society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. This is the switch in perception that I talked about in last week's episode. And I've said before that people need to make before they can understand 
why the world is as it is. The article goes on. Bayer has put massive resources behind the deal, raising $57 billion in financing, including a new share issue worth 6 billion euros announced Sunday. This article was published on the 4th of June. It will also sell large parts of its existing agrochemical and crop seeds business to BASF in concessions to competition authorities on both sides of the Atlantic. Once the buyout and the sales to BASF are completed, Leverkusen based Bayer's crop science business plus Monsanto will account for almost half its turnover, with most of the remainder coming from pharmaceuticals and over the counter health products. At around 19.7 billion euros in 2017, Monsanto and Bayer's combined agriculture sales outweighed those of competitors ChemChina, Dow, DuPont, and BASF, according to figures provided by Bayer. We estimate that Bayer will become number one in seeds and number two in crop protection globally following the merger. Analysts at Standard and Poor's wrote Monday. Nevertheless, the ratings agency downgraded its score for Bayer's debt from A- to triple B while upgrading the outlook to stable. This is all part of the plan for giant corporations to run everything, and part of that is giant corporations taking over other giant corporations to become mega corporations, and this is Orwell's ministries in 1984 where there was a ministry for every area of society and life and they were all operating in the opposite way to what they claimed to be about so for example the ministry of truth was about propaganda the elite want much the same structure i'm describing now but instead of ministries it's mega corporations but unlike the ministries in 1984 these mega corporations will start with one thing like gmo like monsanto and then branch out into other areas as with this merger with Bayer, with pharmaceuticals. This is like how, for example, a small store can start out as just being what a small store is, and then it turns into a supermarket, so then it sells a wider range of products, and it turns into a hypermarket, where it sells pretty much anything. Same basic principle. This is what happened with Amazon. I mean, what does an Amazon sell now? There's another level to all this as well. I've talked before about epigenetics which is the field of study of changes to the dna and, and the genetics of a person because of environmental and experiential influences just as it's been found through what's known as brain plasticity where they previously thought the way the brain was when you were born was how it is for life but they've since found out the opposite is the case and it's experiential and environmental influences that can change the brain so the genetics can change in the same way and that's what epigenetics is about but it's not just that those influences can affect one generation the next generation in other words a person's child can be passed on those genetic changes so for example when you look at the generation snowflake mentality now in universities and elsewhere that is constantly offended and reacts in such a over-the-top way to the most minor of politically incorrect or other offensive experiences. And some of that is drug-induced as well. I've gone into that in episode three. So one generation becomes Generation Snowflake. The next generation is born Generation Snowflake. That's how epigenetics works. And I said before on pay-per-view, they want to change the nature of being human. They want to change what being human means. And it's all part of this agenda for the 
end of humanity as we know it, which is playing out through transhumanism and transgenderism, both of which fundamentally connect. Monsanto's chemical treatment of its crops have come in for criticism over the years, and a 2003 study of preglyphosate slash Roundup exposed rats indicated the formulation exhibited significant tetragenicity. The researchers commented, we may conclude that glyphosate Roundup is toxic to the dams and induces developmental retardation in the fetal skeleton. A study published in 2004 revealed that glyphosate exhibits endocrine disruptive and embryotoxic effects. Researchers found the chemical alters the expression of the enzyme aromatase in both fetal and placental cells and tissue, changes which indicate and may contribute to birth defects and abnormal fetal development. Another study published in 2009 showed that glyphosate formulations induce cell death and necrosis in human umbilical, embryonic and placental cells. When I talked in episode 18 about how GM food gives rise to allergies, and this article goes on to say that in a groundbreaking study published in the journal Analytical and Bioanalytical Chemistry last year, evidence surfaced that glyphosate, the active ingredient in Monsanto's patented herbicide Roundup is flowing freely into the groundwater in areas where it is being applied. The researchers found that 41% of the 140 groundwater samples taken from Catalonia, Spain had levels beyond the limit of quantification, indicating that despite the manufacturer's claims glyphosate herbicide does not break down rapidly in the environment and is accumulating there in concerning quantities. According to the US, according to the US Geological Survey, 88,000 tons of glyphosate were used in the US in 2007 alone and the USGS says that this study is one of the first to document the consistent occurrence of this chemical in streams, rain and air throughout the growing season. An article posted on its website says in these studies glyphosate was frequently detected in surface waters, rain and air in areas where it is heavily used in the basin. The consistent occurrence of glyphosate in streams and air indicates its transport from its point of use into the broader environment. And it should also be kept in mind that glyphosate is considered by the EPA as a class three toxic substance. This is a story from CBS News website from November seventh, two thousand two. Toxic secret. Imagine a place so saturated with toxic chemicals and chemicals that it's in the dirt people walk on, the air they breathe, even the blood that pumps through their veins. The 24,000 people living in Alliston, Alabama don't have to imagine this. Many of them are living it. In fact, they have been living it for decades. They just didn't know it. The company responsible didn't tell them, and neither did the Environmental Protection Agency. 60 Minutes aired this story last November, and just last week there was a major development. Monsanto and its corporate spin-off called Solution agreed to pay $700 million in damages and cleanup costs to the community, correspondent Steve Cross reports. Today, parts of Aniston are so contaminated that residents have been told not to grow vegetables on the soil, kick up dirt, eat food, chew gum, or smoke cigarettes while working in their yards. Our children have to play in the streets on the sidewalks because they can't play in the grass because it's contaminated, says resident David Baker. We have to wear masks if we cut our grass. Where else in the United States of America are people doing that? The problem is polychlorinated by phenols. PCB is one of the most pervasive and profitable industrial chemicals of 20th century America. They were used as insulators and electric transformers and mixed into everything from paint to newsprint. They were invented in Aniston in 1929 and manufactured here by Monsanto for almost 40 years, a source of wealth and jobs until the 1970s, when it became clear that PCBs were doing more harm to the environment than good for industry. 
They were banned in 1979, but the people here are still living with the legacy. In my judgment, there's no question this is the most contaminated site in the US, says Dr. David Carpenter, a professor of environmental health at the State University of New York in Albany. Carpenter has testified against PCB makers and says every national and international health agency in the world lists PCBs as a probable human carcinogen. I would say there's no probable about it. That means that there's absolute definitive evidence that they cause cancer in animals and that there is evidence in humans consistent with the conclusion that they cause cancer, says Carpenter, who adds that the PCB exposure increases the risk of almost all major diseases, including heart disease and diabetes. Within the objective scientific community, within the government bodies, there is no debate at all, says Carpenter. Approximately 20,000 current former residents in Aniston have joined five different lawsuits against Monsanto for polluting their community, threatening their health and destroying their property. Monsanto dumped tons of raw PCBs directly into Snow Creek, which runs by the plant. 5,000 additional tons are buried in a hillside and Baker believes they're still giving off fumes. This is part of Snow Creek, Stink Creek, Smell Creek, says Baker. Where is PCBs coming from if you stopped making it in 1971? You stopped making the stuff in 1971 and still breathing it in 2002. Baker and three and a half thousand other plaintiffs are being represented by Donald Stewart, an attorney and former US senator who lives in Alliston. At no point in time did the company ever inform the people in that community about the problems they were facing, said Stewart. My suspicion is that they knew that one day we would be in the situation we're in right now. The internal documents indicate that they knew they had tremendous liability there at that plant site. The article goes on. Stewart uncovered close to a million pages of company documents that show Monsanto knew PCBs were a problem as early as 1938 when scientists hired by the company reported that rats exposed to the chemicals delivered liver damage. By the 1950s, Monsanto was urging its own workers to wear proper protective clothing and respiratory equipment when handling PCBs. Many of the documents dealing with PCBs and weather pollutants were marked confidential, read and destroy. They were warned by the people who did those tests that they should warn their neighbours because children and animals might be affected by what was being released from their plants, says Stuart. In 1969, Monsanto created a high-level PCB committee whose mission was to protect the image of the corporation and permit continued sales and profits. Even they concluded that PCBs will someday become a global environmental contaminant, but no one let the community know the extent of the problem and little was said about it in the press. In fact, people in Anniston might never have known about the contamination if it weren't for a man with the Soil Conservation Service, who pulled a badly deformed largemouth base out of Chocoloco Creek in 1993. Instead of throwing it back, he decided to send it off to an independent lab for analysis and discovered that the fish was loaded with PCBs. By that time, the contamination had spread downstream. The state of Alabama put out warnings not to eat local fish. Residents of Anniston are angry with the EPA, which was aware of the contamination since the 1970s, but never warned the community. I do think that if we had known that the contamination was as widespread as we now believe it to be, there were additional measures that we could have taken and probably should, says Stan Mabu, the EPA's deputy regional administrator for the Southeast. We absolutely understand the concerns that people have in Anniston and one of the things that has occurred in this is we have learned from the community. There's an article here about GM crops. This is in The Guardian from October 2011. GM crops promote superweeds, food insecurity and pesticides, say NGOs. Genetic engineering has failed to increase the yield of any food crop but has vastly increased the use of chemicals and the growth of superweeds, according to a report by 20 Indian, Southeast Asian, African and Latin American food and conservation groups representing millions of people. The so-called miracle crops, which were first sold in the US about 20 years ago and which are now grown in 29 countries on about 1.5 billion hectares, 3.7 billion acres of land, have been billed as potential solutions to food crises, climate change and soil erosion, but the assessment finds that they have not lived up to their promises. Well, as far as climate change, I 
Let's talk about climate change in episode 18. The report claims that hunger has reached epic proportions since the technology was developed. Besides this, only two GM traits have been developed on any significant scale, despite investments of tens of billions of dollars. And benefits such as drought resistance and salt tolerance have yet to materialise on any scale. Most worrisome, say the authors of the Global Citizens Report on the State of GMOs, is the greatly increased use of synthetic chemicals used to control pests despite biotech companies' justification that GM-engineered crops would reduce insecticide use. I've said before that the idea is for a synthetic world, including a synthetic natural world and a synthetic human form. And people like Ray Kurzweil, a Google executive and co-founder of the Singularity University in Silicon Valley, California, are saying that nanotechnology will infuse everything with itself and the natural world will become intelligent technologically. This is where chemtrails come in because chemtrails, unlike condensation trails from aircraft, stick around in the sky and expand to contain metals and chemicals and I'm absolutely sure nanotechnology, which is beyond the ability of the human eye to see it. I mean, when people like Kurzweil talk about the natural world all over the world becoming intelligent through the infusion of nanotechnology, how are you going to do that except from the sky? This is the same nanotechnology that Kurzweil is talking about being inside humans and entering the human brain and connecting the brain mind to what he calls the cloud. This is the transhumanism agenda. The agenda is for a synthetic, non-human, technological world. The article goes on. The article goes on. In China, where insect-resistant BT cotton is widely planted, populations of pests that previously posed only minor problems have increased 12-fold since 1997. A 2008 study in the International Journal of Biotechnology found that any benefits of planting BT cotton have been eroded by the increasing use of pesticides needed to combat them. Additionally, soya growers in Argentina and Brazil have been found to use twice as much herbicide on their GM as they do on conventional crops. And a survey by Navdanya International in India showed that pesticide use increased 13-fold since BT cotton was introduced. The report, which draws on empirical research and companies' own statements, also says weeds are now developing resistance to the GM firm's herbicides and pesticides that are designed to be used with their crops and that this has led to growing infestations of superweeds, especially in the U.S. Ten common weeds have now developed resistance in at least 22 U.S. states with about 6 million hectares, 15 million acres of soya, cotton and corn are now affected. Consequently, farmers are being forced to use more herbicides to combat the resistant weeds, says the report. GM companies are paying farmers to use other stronger chemicals, they say. The genetic engineering miracle is quite clearly faltering in farmers' fields, as the authors. The companies have succeeded in marketing their crops to more than 50 million farmers, largely by heavy lobbying of governments, buying up liquid seed companies and withdrawing conventional seeds from the market, the report claims. Monsanto, DuPont and Syngenta, the world's three largest GM companies, now control nearly 70% of global seed sales. This allows them to own and sell GM seeds through patents and intellectual property rights and to charge farmers extra, claims the report. The study accuses Monsanto of gaining control over 95% of the Indian cotton seed market and of massively pushing up prices. High levels of indebtedness among farmers is thought to be behind many of the quarter of a million deaths by suicide of Indian farmers over the past 15 years. The report, which is backed by Friends of the Earth International, the Centre for Food Safety in the US, Confederation Pisani and the Gaia Foundation, in other words, Earth Foundation, among others, also questions the safety of GM crops, citing studies and reports which indicate that people and animals have experienced apparent allergic reactions. I talk about allergic reactions to GM food in episode 18. 
but it suggests scientists are loath to question the safety aspects for fear of being attacked by establishment bodies which often receive large grants from the companies to control the technology. Monsanto disputes the report's findings. In our view, the safety and benefits of GM are well established. Hundreds of millions of meals containing food from GM crops have been consumed and there has not been a single substantiated instance of illness or harm associated with GM crops. Well, after what I've said about Monsanto already, you can't trust a single word they say. Well, when it comes to Monsanto, as we'll see, you can't trust a single word they say. Monsanto went on to say last year the National Research Council of the US National Academy of Sciences issued a report the impact of genetically engineered crops on farm sustainability in the United States which concludes that US farmers growing biotech crops are realizing substantial economic and environmental benefits such as lower production costs, fewer pest problems, reduced use of pesticides and better yields compared with, compared with conventional crops. David King, a former UK chief scientist who is now director of the Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment at Oxford University, has blamed food shortages in Africa partly on anti-GM campaigns in rich countries. But, the report's authors claim, GM crops are adding to food insecurity because most are now being grown for biofuels, which take away land from local food production. Vandana Shiva, director of the Indian organisation Navdanya International, which coordinated the report, said the GM model of farming undermines farmers trying to farm ecological coexistence between GM and conventional crops is not possible because genetic pollution and contamination of conventional crops is impossible to control. Choices being undermined as food systems are increasingly controlled by giant corporations. That's the idea. They want that with everything. The quote goes on. And as chemical and genetic pollution spread. That's the idea as well. They want to change our atmosphere and environment into a toxic, irradiated state. The quote goes on. GM companies are putting noose around the neck of farmers. That's the idea as well. The quote goes on. They are destroying alternatives in the pursuit of profit. On one level, yes, but on another level it plays into the, the Hunger Games Society and Agenda 21. This is an interesting article in The Guardian from September 2001. GM corn set to stop man spreading his seed. Scientists have created the ultimate GM crop, contraceptive corn. Fields of maize, corn in other words, may one day save the world from overpopulation. But it's not about overpopulation, it's about depopulation. Ultimately, the pregnancy prevention plants are the handiwork of the San Diego biotechnology company Epicyte, where researchers have discovered a rare class of human antibodies that attack sperm. By isolating the genes that regulate the manufacture of these antibodies and by putting them in corn plants, the company has created tiny horticultural factories that make contraceptives. We have a hothouse filled with corn plants that make anti-sperm antibodies, said Episode President Mitch Hein. We've also created corn plants that make antibodies against the herpes virus, so we should be able to make a plant-based jelly that not only prevents pregnancy, but also blocks the spread of sexual disease. Contraceptive corn is based on research on the rare condition, immune infertility, in which a woman makes antibodies that attack sperm. Essentially, the antibodies are attracted to surface receptors on the sperm, said Hein. They latch on and make each sperm so heavy it cannot move forward, it just shakes about. The article goes on. Normally, biologists use bacteria to grow human proteins. However, Epicyte decided to use corn because plants have cellular structures that are much more like those of humans, making them easier to manipulate. Company, which says it will not grow the maize near other crops, says it plans to launch clinical trials of the corn in a few. Says it plans to launch clinical trials of the corn in a few months. So, when you put all this together, 
The goal with GM food is to destroy the health of the population, get people off the land like farmers and landowners, and get them into the mega cities of Agenda 21 and generating ownership on food production by corporations so that anyone resisting or exposing authority doesn't get access to food. This is the world we're in now to an extent and we're heading towards more and more all the time. Unless we become aware of it and address it and that's what pay-per-view is all about. So that's it for this week. That's the news, that's the contest and connections, that's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.